Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature part 5 of the life of Darwin and faecal transplants. Faecal transplants now have fans. In the 4th December 2012 issue of the Journal of the American College of Physicians was the article Faecal transplant may become standard for C. diff. Clostridium difficile is a bacterium of the gut that causes severe pain, bloating and diarrhoea. Over 10,000 people die of the illness every year. Faecal microbial transplants are a treatment where the bad bacteria in the gut of someone with a bowel disease, such as Clostridium difficile, are killed off with severe antibiotics and purging, and then replaced with a filtered transplant of faeces from a healthy donor who's been screened against transmissible illness. The article reports that in Canada, 90% of patients were completely cured of Clostridium difficile by a faecal transplant. It's taken a long time for doctors to accept the treatment as standard. Despite having been the only working treatment for Clostridium difficile because of the yuck factor. Patients, on the other hand, usually have less of a problem overcoming the yuck factor because they want to live. The Centre for Digestive Diseases in New South Wales has been championing faecal microbiota transplantation, having performed more than 2,500 procedures in the last 18 years. It's the only centre in Australia to routinely treat Clostridium difficile infection, CDI, with faecal microbiota transplantation. A number of extremely ill patients have been taken to the centre by ambulance for the procedure, and 92% recovered after the first treatment. Hospitals around the world are now conducting clinical trials into FMT, faecal microbiota transplantation, in Clostridium difficile and other conditions. It's also been introduced to worldwide gastroenterology conferences in the form of papers and posters. The Centre for Digestive Diseases has experimented with the procedure on people suffering chronic diarrhoea and are looking to inflammatory bowel disease and other conditions. I'm personally interested in this, as I interviewed Professor Barodi about the science behind this procedure back in 1999. And in early 2000, I tried the treatment for my chronic fatigue syndrome. First, you're given antibiotics which will kill off most of the symbiotic and parasitic bacteria in your gut. And you're also given drugs to make you flush this out of your body over way too many days. Some hospitals add colonic irrigation to make sure it's all removed. Then there are two unpleasant alternatives, depending on how sick you are. You can have a tube go up your nose and all the way down your throat and down out of your stomach and into your bowels, if your bowels are very inflamed. Otherwise, the faecal microbes from a healthy screen donor are introduced at the other end, as an enema, directly into your bowels. The new bacteria rapidly take the place of the old. The reason all this works is that there are more living cells of bacteria in human poo than there are in the rest of the body combined, which means that we are literally full of it. Over a third of the population 
suffer from bowel problems that result from bowel bacteria gone bad. Professor Thomas Barodi of the Centre for Digestive Diseases is researching which illnesses are caused by the bacteria in the bowel gone wrong and bacterial therapies to restore health not only to the gut, but to the brain. In 1999, I spoke to him about how bowel flora affects the brain and the triple S, sick flora syndrome. Our main area of research interest is the study of the importance and relevance to human health of the human intestinal flora, put more bluntly, human poo. It has for a long time been thought that the human flora is simply a waste product, as is carbon dioxide, but nothing is further from the truth. In fact, we should really be much more aware of what human flora is all about. When one looks at the numerical composition of what is in us, one starts to realize that this is the largest organ of the body, that the stool is made up of living and dead cells, but when one takes account of the living cells, there are nine times more living cells, living bacterial cells in the human flora than there are in the entire human body. Are you talking about inside the human bowel or in the stool that you get rid of from the bowel? Inside the human bowel, the entire poo, if you want to put it that way. So that when we look at a human being walking along the street, uh, that person, in terms of cell count, is 90% human stool, bacteria, and 10% human body. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who are more than 90%, yeah, and some full of it, full of it yes. <laughs> now, having stated the largest, large numbers, let's now also realize that it isn't just one single cell type. It isn't just a lactobacillus or a bifidobacterium. In fact, the human flora is made up of at least 24,000 subspecies and perhaps up to 50,000 subspecies of bacteria. So apart from huge, huge numbers, it also is extremely complex. The bowel flora contains mostly one bacterium, which is called Bacteroides fragilis, or Bacteroides species. Other bacteria include E. coli, Eubacteria, Clostridia, and somewhere near the bottom of the list come the Lactobacilli and Bifidobacteria, which make up mostly the bulk of children's or babies' bacteria. So the most important bacteria are bacteroides, the anaerobic bacteria. And that lactobacillus, they're the sort of bacteria that are in yogurt? Yes, lactobacilli are in health foods and in yogurt, but they don't seem to play a major role in the health of the adult flora, is our understanding at the present time. Now, having introduced you to what the bowel flora is made up of, Let's now look at how it can be disturbed. And I think it's easy to understand that when the bowel flora is acutely infected with something like a salmonella infection, that the body that is carrying this infected organ, the infected stool, can suffer from it. So we know that we will develop cramping, pain, diarrhea, but also nausea and vomiting. It's interesting to me that a bacterium which enters into the bowel flora, into your poo, can make your brain suffer. It can give you nausea. It can make you vomit. So nausea is really more of a brain thing. Than it's a brain thing. thing, absolutely. And so these Salmonella or Shigelli manufacture substances which cross the bowel wall into the bloodstream and then make our brain say, I am nauseated, I want to vomit very similar to a situation 
where you might take a medication that crosses the blood-brain barrier and makes you feel like vomiting, such as flagell, for example, makes a number of people vomit. So here we have a situation where we have a sick flora syndrome. We call it the triple S, the sick flora syndrome for short, where acutely you can become infected and you get symptoms both in the bowel, which is cramping and diarrhea, and nausea. Some people go off their food, especially with Campylobacter jejuni. So you can see now how anorexia, another brain syndrome, uh, can be caused by the presence of bacteria in the bowel. Now, our main interest is not in the acute infections because no, you know, this is, goes away and can be fixed. But there is probably a very much larger group of patients, and perhaps up to 30% of the population, which is infected with bacteria. Did you say anorexia could be caused by these bacteria? Oh, we know it is. Is it like ulcers used to be thought to be caused by stress and actually bacteria? Yes, you're asking whether anorexia nervosa is caused by this. Um, I can tell you that anorexia is caused by bacteria. In, if a patient becomes infected with Campylobacter jejuni, they initially just go off their food. They will lose six, seven kilo, and that is called anorexia. Whether anorexia nervosa is caused by some other bacterium really needs to be elucidated, but it is very definitely uh, a possibility. It just hasn't been looked at. And you're saying 30% of the population have bowel problems? Well, yes, about 30% of the population have from minor to, to very severe uh, condition, which one could call functional bowel disorders or irritable bowel syndrome or constipation, but lumped together, there's something wrong with their guts. And we believe that those patients do not suffer from a psychosomatic disorder. These patients do not suffer from lack of fiber, but almost certainly they suffer from some sort of a chronic bowel flora abnormality. In other words, they have the triple S, or the sick bowel flora syndrome, for short. We won't explain the middle S here. So we postulate that these patients have become infected with bacteria which are capable of staying within the bowel flora for the rest of your life. And we know that this is eminently possible. We know, for example, that Yersinia entraclitica can stay in the bowel flora or inside cells for the rest of your life. We also know that Clostridium perfringens, Clostridium um, difficile and other Clostridia can also stay around forever. Why? Well, because they have spores. And these spores cannot be eradicated by known antibiotics. They sometimes disappear on their own. But we do know that other bacteria have the capability of dissecting out or removing such bacteria from the bowel. For example, babies catch Clostridium botulinum infection in childhood. But as soon as they develop an adult flora, botulinum infection is not recorded. Which means that one bug can offset or kill another bug. We have an ecology in there, an extremely complex ecology, which teaches us lessons. It teaches us that we could possibly develop therapies for these 30% of patients in the population who suffer from a variety of illnesses we call functional bowel disorders, and we could possibly cure them by giving them bacteria to eat, which could dissect out these chronic infections. And this, in essence, is our research. We are attempting to put together 
a bacterial product, which will be called bacteriotherapy. These bacteria will be eaten um, as cultures, live cultures, similar to what we currently can see in shops called yogurt or uh, lactobacilli or acidophilus. But these will be bacteria that have proven ability to dissect out pathogens. Pathogens meaning bacteria which can cause disease. And what we are hoping to do is to put together such an army of various mixes of bacteria that can dissect out Clostridia, that can dissect out toxigenic E. coli, and other bacteria that can cause what we call irritable bowel syndrome. You can just imagine the fermentation that goes on in the bowel of a patient, the bloating, the gas, the motility disturbances that we call constipation or diarrhea. This is what we would like to eradicate because at the present time, patients accumulate these infections often by eating uh, infected food. Fast food is provided to us by one pair of hands that makes the food for thousands. And these days we have antibiotics which suppress our normal defense system. They suppress our bacterial flora. Our biggest organ of the body, the bowel flora, as stated before, is suppressed by antibiotics while we have a hamburger made by a fast food chain in the other. And so we can acquire bacteria that then infect our gut. And some of these are able to implant and stay. In fact, it's well documented and proven that up to 30% of patients will end up having irritable bowel syndrome lifelong after an acute gastroenteritis infection. And it is our thesis that these patients develop this because they have acquired a bug through their mouth at that acute gastroenteritis infection. And not the bacterium that we identified as the bug, but perhaps another handful that we didn't identify that came in through the same portal. So that's the essence. Now, the other fascinating thing is that because gut infections not only cause local symptoms, but peripheral symptoms, what we call para-infective phenomena, we may well be able to treat disorders which we now call autoimmune, such as joint disease, skin changes, arthritis often follows gut infections. And there are many conditions which affect the brain and muscular system. So, for example, chronic tiredness. We have an example. Botulism can cause profound tiredness. We have an adult-type botulism called chronic fatigue syndrome. And most patients with chronic fatigue syndrome have altered bowel function. It is quite feasible that this very condition, for example, could have been caused by an acquisition into the gut, into this large organ, of bacteria that we cannot detect since this organ is so extremely complex. And the patients simply absorb through the gut wall toxins or substances that make them feel and experience syndromes and symptoms which doctors dispel and explain as being psychosomatic in origin. And they may well be organic and possibly curable in the future. In fact, we've had evidence, and there are some published uh, works, on children with autism, where we believe that the autistic children that acquire autism around the age of one year of age, after a course of antibiotics and ear infections, that they may well have been infected with bacteria uh, that uh, one American writer 
has called clostridium tetani, or simple tetanus, which then enters the gut, manufactures the toxins that we know, and these may travel either through the bloodstream or up the vagus nerve and affect the blood flow in the temporal lobes, giving the sort of syndrome that we cause autism. And I think this will be a beginning of an opening of a fairly large era of research uh, once we start understanding better our huge organ, the human intestinal flora. That was Professor Thomas Barodi of the Centre for Digestive Diseases speaking with me about replacing bad poo with good poo back in 1999. Since that time, research around the world has started to catch up, and for one illness at least, Clostridium difficile infection, this poo transplant will become the standard treatment. It just works. Other illnesses may follow. You can find out more about the Centre for Digestive Diseases at www.cdd.com.au. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and podcast over the internet on diffusionradio.com. Now for your enjoyment is Episode 5 of Natural Selection, a radio play by Lachlan Watmore about the life, journeys and discoveries of the greatest biologist of the modern age, Charles Darwin. This recording is from the 20 kilobits per second radio stream from 2003, so please excuse the lower quality. Last time, Darwin had just published The Origin of Species and was now awaiting the outcome. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to present Professor Stephen J. Gould. Thank you, Mr. Darwin. Modern Western science can be said to have undergone three major revolutions in its history. The first was when early Christian luminaries such as St Thomas Aquinas adapted the writings of ancient thinkers such as Aristotle to Christian doctrine, enabling people to think in a slightly more rational way. The second was the cosmological revolution of the Renaissance when men such as Copernicus and Galileo showed that the structure of the universe is different to what we had previously believed. And the third is the biological revolution of the mid-19th century, led by my friend and inspiration, Mr. Charles Darwin. And this revolution is ongoing. In 1859, my book, On the Origin of Species, was published and became an instant bestseller. After many years of travelling, studying, researching and confronting my doubts as to the authenticity of biblical scripture, I was finally prompted to publish my long treatise, not out of a burning desire to state my case, but out of fear that someone else would publish first. That someone was Alfred Wallace, who had arrived at my own conclusion while journeying through Malaysia. I was ill with fever and phantom images were flashing through my mind as I lay sick in bed. Suddenly, I saw at once that the ever-present variability of all living things would furnish the material from which by the mere weeding out of those less adapted to the actual conditions, the fittest alone would continue the race. Soon after, Darwin and I presented a, a joint paper to the Linnaean Society, outlining our theories regarding the transmutation of species. It received little attention at the time, but after Darwin's book was published, the floodgates were open. In 1860, a meeting was convened by the British Association for the Advancement of Science to debate the theory of the origin of species. By then, the ire of the clergy had been aroused and a champion for the scriptures had stepped forward. He was Samuel Wilberforce, the Bishop of Oxford, whose impassioned eloquence when speaking had earned him the nickname Soapy Sam. 
the study of the natural world, when it is viewed as the marvel of God's creation that it is, does not trouble me in the slightest. But to look for alternatives to the wisdom of holy scriptures by the seemingly pointless pursuit of comparative anatomy and to draw unfounded and, I might say, rather offensive conclusions from such studies is beyond the pale. Darwin, fine man that he is, seems to have overstepped the mark and it's time to bring him down a notch or two, if only to save his mortal soul. Because my health had never been the same since my return from the voyage of the Beagle, I was too ill to attend the meeting which was held in the Zoological Museum at Oxford. In my place were two of my most ardent champions, namely Thomas Huxley and Joseph Hooker. I am a botanist and up until 1859 was a devout anti-evolutionist. Then I read Darwin's book and found that his reflections on the comparative anatomy of animals were mirrored quite markedly when one considered plants. From then on, I was converted to his glorious, truthful heresy. The meeting held by the association is remembered in two ways. One is its more mythological form. The other, not widely circulated, but by and large agreed upon by historical scholars, is a more accurate retelling of the story. The myth of this meeting involves yours truly, Thomas Henry Huxley as the hero. It was by chance that I was at the meeting at all, having only come at the urging of a friend whom I had met in the street that morning. The meeting was chaired by Darwin's old teacher, Professor John Henslow and had already been going for two days with a series of preliminary lectures, mostly specialist speakers with boring subject matter. It was already a warm summer day, and the crowd, forewarned in anticipation of an entertaining clash between the bishop and Darwin's supporters, quickly grew bored and listless. Heavens above, what a dull man! When is his lordship due to speak? He's next, Lady Brewster. Well, I pray we shall find more sport and entertainment in his discourse. Presently, the hour-long peroration of Dr. Draper from the United States drew to a close. By this time, soapy Sam Wilberforce and his attendant clergy had entered the room. Thank you, Dr. Draper. I now call on his lordship, the Bishop of Oxford, to speak. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I shall begin by reading from the book of Genesis. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, the human race no longer stands at the pinnacle of creation. Man is no longer the master of the world, but thanks to the machinations of the learned Mr. Darwin, no more than a simian son, without purpose, without morality, and without the divine plan, so clearly outlined in the book of Genesis. Man, it is stated without ambiguity, was created by the Almighty to be master of this world, which is why we were made in God's image. However, the insidious teachings of Darwinism proclaim us to be the product of amoral, base struggle. Rather than placing us in our rightful position of God's special creation, the powerful and occasionally wise overseer of the earth, this blasphemy cast man into the slime by stating that the mud is from whence he came. Mr. Darwin, where is the proof? You have piled more observations than I care to count in your book to show how certain species are similar to each other. But nowhere do you show with absolute clarity that species were not fixed by God during the week of creation. To take one of your examples, the finches of the Galapagos, with their varied beak sizes, of course the Lord would create them to suit their diet. Did you think the Almighty would let one of his beautiful creations starve? And as Solomon said, are we not greater than the birds? Now, 
the devout industry of Archbishop Usher and Dr. John Lightfoot of Cambridge University has calculated by way of careful examination of the Bible and other works the exact date and time when the world was created. It was 9 a.m. on Sunday the 23rd of October 4004 B.C. Mr. Huxley, do you claim descent from an ape through your grandfather or your grandmother? Huxley's moment had come. He turned to the scientist sitting next to him on the podium, clapped his knee and said, The Lord hath delivered him into mine hands. And striding purposefully to the lectern, demolished the bishop's argument and parried his insult thus. I would rather have an ape for a grandfather than a brilliant man who plunges into scientific question of which he knows nothing and who prostitutes the gifts of culture and eloquence to the service of prejudice and falsehood. For God's sake, someone pick up Lady Brewster. How dare you blaspheme in the presence of a lady, sir. This meeting is the truth. Here is the truth. Grey-haired man went to his feet. It was Robert Fitzroy, now an admiral, who had been captain of the Beagle during Darwin's voyage. Like Darwin, he was no longer youthful, but unlike Darwin, he had not changed his mind about the book of Genesis. He brandished a Bible in his hand like a sword and said, this, this book in my hand, the word of God, it's the truth. It, not the viper I harbored on my ship, is the true and unimpeachable authority. This meeting is closed. Of course, as with all myths, that's not exactly what happened. Listen next week for the sixth and final part of Natural Selection, a radio play by Lachlan Watmore on the life and discoveries of the greatest biologist of the modern age, Charles Darwin. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and look for us on Facebook on Diffusion Science Radio. Contributing to this program were Dominic Cochran, Tim Baines, Adam Mark, Chris Stewart, Amanda Hamilton and Lachlan Watmore. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha <laughs> ha